Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. Hidden, a true crime podcast. A forensic psychologist and a journalist explore the hidden motives behind unthinkable crimes while examining our deepest fears along the way. Is that American 11 trying to call? We have some claims. Just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We're adjourning to the airport. And uh, who's trying to call me here? American 11, are you trying to call? Nobody move. Everything will be okay. If you try to make any move, you'll danger yourself and the airplane. Just stay quiet. This is Lauren Mathias. And I'm Dr. John Mathias. That chilling audio is Muhammad Atta. Muhammad Atta is the terrorist who flew Flight 11 into the North Tower of the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001. Muhammad Atta was a part of Al-Qaeda and largely responsible for the plan and execution to bring down the World Trade Centers. You might be wondering why we're going to lead with Muhammad Atta today. We still need to talk about Spencer, right? Weren't we we talking about Spencer in the last episode, part one, who's dating or thought he was dating Katy Perry? Um, Okay, I've been talking to this woman for the last six years. I'm in love with her. Um, Wow. uh, She's awesome. Um, It's Katy Perry. Yes, we were, but we really need to up the ante this week, and we need to move from the idea of love as a panacea to love as something potentially lethal. So in other words, Spencer is important in helping us understand how a normal person can view love through a very distorted lens and become wrapped up 
in an abstraction or an ideal of love or anything for that matter that then takes over one's life and leads to potentially inexplicable behaviors and not only that is willing to pursue that ideal without any evidence for those who didn't listen to part one which if you haven't listened to episode 13 the last episode we recommend you do that first but if you're going to continue spencer i'm referring to spencer who's in love with Katy perry we're talking about an episode of the mtv show catfish spencer from knoxville tennessee believed that he was dating Katy perry take a listen all right spencer level with us for a second on the scale of one to ten ten being i fully believe i'm in a virtual relationship with Katy perry and one being this could be true but probably isn't but i thought it would be a good episode of catfish where where do you fall on that scale When we think about Spencer and Lori from last week, the analogy of chasing this ideal love for Spencer, that was falling in love with Katy Perry. Katy's full of life. She's huge heart. Have you guys said that you love each other? Many times. For Lori, that was reuniting with Jesus Christ in the afterlife. I had the love of Jesus Christ washed over me. There is nothing like that on this earth. It is life-changing and eternity-altering. I should mention, by the way, that the reason Lori's belief about Jesus is so extreme is not because she sees Jesus as a loving figure with whom she develops a close relationship. Rather, the belief is extreme because Lori claims to have actually met and developed a relationship with Jesus in person, in the flesh. I'll just start by saying that I am a personal witness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. I am his advocate and I am his friend. That Jesus was a witness at her and Chad's marriage in the temple, and that additionally, she had encountered Jesus in the flesh. We don't know much about her encounters with Jesus, just that she claims to have had them and will not deny them. Listen to this phone call with Melanie Gibb when she's expressing how strongly she feels about her relationship with Jesus Christ. No, God knows it. And I will never deny it. For my soul would be at stake if I did. So you can say it didn't happen to me, Mel. But if I say it, then I am accountable. You didn't witness it, but I did. So today, we want to transition from the idea of pursuing love as an ideal, which Lori and Spencer both do to some degree. And they do that to feel special And because there's something redemptive about chasing love as an ideal, there's something that is potentially cleansing and healing about finding this love that is, in some ways, as we talked about last week, unrealistic and unobtainable. And I think in both cases, the notion that Spencer is in love with someone based on very flimsy evidence and that she's in love with him is to him at least, redemptive and unique 
and it makes him feel loved and special. I have made a ring for her. For Lori, similarly, the idea that she has met Jesus Christ in person and developed a personal relationship with him, and I'm not talking about that in the spiritual way that most Christians would describe. No. No, no. (laughs) I'm talking about a very different type of belief here. I'm talking about a belief of actually meeting Jesus Christ and not having more of a spiritual relationship or anticipating a spiritual relationship later. Yeah, we're talking about a Mary Magdalene type of meeting. Or, for those who understand Mormonism, a Joseph Smith type of meeting where Joseph Smith saw Jesus Christ, a resurrected being in a grove of trees in the 1800s. That was the foundation of Mormonism. Yes, it was. And so in some ways, that's what Lori's arguing here, is that she, her encounters with Jesus in the flesh, are potentially foundational. And Chad, too. I think desiring to be like Joseph Smith, a prophet, who, again, believers say that Joseph Smith saw the resurrected Savior... I think this is a big part of Lori and Chad's fantasy. I want to play that recording with Melanie Gibb and Lori again. Chad's on the phone too during this part I'm about to play, but he's silent. It's confusing what's being discussed for those not familiar with Mormonism or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But if you listen closely, there's an argument or disagreement going on here. Melanie is arguing that Lori could not have seen or received what Lori believes she received because there were no other witnesses. Lori's rebuttal to Melanie is that the prophet Joseph Smith saw Jesus Christ when Joseph Smith was alone. So it doesn't matter if there was a witness. Thus, Lori knows what she saw is true. It's kind of disturbing when you realize the context. Lori is literally comparing herself to the revered founder of the LDS church. To me, that applies that Lori really believes she's been called of God, just like Joseph Smith. Take a listen. There's no witness that you ever received what you think you received. Nobody has seen that but you. There's no witness. The witness, Joseph Smith, Oliver Calvary, Martin Harris, the eight witnesses, they all showed up. Is there a witness that Jesus, Father, gave that to Joseph Smith by himself in the grove? Was there a witness? No, but they had no. it later with other uh, people. That was uh, one experience, but others joined in later. When he brought other people into uh, it, they had experiences. Is that in the scriptures, yes or no? I'm sorry? Is that in the scriptures, yes or no? That, that Joseph was alone when he saw God the Father and Jesus Christ? Yes. Yes, he was alone. He was alone. But he okay. had to open it up That's first. That's not a pattern at all. Honey, what I'm saying is, is that after he saw that and other people joined in, they saw the things with him. And he wasn't alone. There was a witness for them. There was no witness. Anybody's never seen what you've seen or experienced what you've seen. That's your own witness, but nobody said that. No, God knows it, and I will never deny it. For my soul would be at stake if I did. So you can say it didn't happen to me, Mel, but if I say it, then I am accountable. You didn't witness it. But but your behaviors is not, okay, I understand that's what you you believe you saw, but this is the thing, as I see, is that your behavior is not one of somebody that's in Christ. Your behavior, your behavior. What? I believe that Chad very much mirrored Joseph Smith's 
experiences from everything that I've read and can see a lot of it is taken straight from Mormon history, Joseph Smith's life experiences. And so I think that's a good transition to Muhammad Atta, which is moving us from this notion of love as an unobtainable ideal to love as a potentially lethal force. American 11, are you trying to call? Nobody moves. Everything will be okay. If you try to make any moves, you danger yourself and the airplane. Just stay quiet. Muhammad Atta, who, oddly enough, is willing to murder thousands of people in the World Trade Centers in order to reunite with Allah or God, that he's doing this because he wants to attain some blissful state in the afterlife. Sounds familiar. And Lori, Lori's extreme beliefs in love and the apocalypse certainly begin to exceed in magnitude and extremity the beliefs that Spencer would ever hold. That Spencer, for the most part, is fairly benign, but I think he was a really good introduction and example of how beliefs can get formed in a very extreme manner without evidence, and they're simply false. They're fiction. And so Lori and Spencer share those commonalities in terms of seeing love as this unobtainable ideal and seeing love as something that's redemptive and feeling quite special as a result of those beliefs. So in this episode then, since we're continuing about Lori, are we going to learn about how Lori and Mohammed Atta are similar? Exactly. We want to leave Spencer behind. Sorry, Spencer. Uh, he's going to show up a few times in this episode. Yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll make an appearance. <laughs> we but... know that because we've actually, this was recorded, as we said, at that same dinner table as part one. But new introduction, new, new things to cover. Right. We want to transition from love as this relatively harmless ideal to the notion that love in some instances can be lethal. And I think the parallels between Muhammad Atta and Lori are quite striking. That what we want to do here is continue with this idea of love, but in a slightly different vein, and it's from a slightly different perspective, and one that gets us closer to understanding the mind of Lori Daybell and the mind of Muhammad Atta, and we will be looking at some research based on the mind of a terrorist that actually tends to bring these two, Atta and Lori, together in some fashion. Before we begin, I need to make another quick disclaimer. Please keep in mind that the defendants in this case, Chad and Lori, are both innocent until proven guilty. They still need to go to trial, and they will have their day in court. Additionally, I want to remind our listeners, our analyses are speculative. We're developing hypothetical scenarios, much like a forensic psychologist might do. That does not mean that our interpretation of this situation is definitive. It just means that we're providing one analysis of this case. As many of you are aware, I'm sure many of our listeners have chimed in with alternative accounts of this case. So this is speculative. It's based on incomplete information and... It is meant to be educational and to spur dialogue about this case. 
all diagnoses discussed and provided are provisional. Those two are speculative. They're not definitive. Diagnosis is simply a part of the language of forensic psychology, so it would be unavoidable for me not to discuss some diagnoses because it's part of the vocabulary that forensic psychologists use. But again, diagnoses provided are entirely speculative and provisional and in no way reflect the actual diagnoses of the particular defendants in this case. Without further delay, let's move on from the appetizers to the main course. We give you part two. Let's start bringing some of this together then. I hope now we have some sense of how and why Lori developed some of her extreme beliefs in her family and her family culture that in many ways her extreme religious beliefs were a defense mechanism against the pain and trauma of her childhood. And because the negative experiences in her life seemed to continue to accumulate, that her beliefs continued to become more extreme. In episode 12, we looked at the way in which Chad was creating this fantasy of Lori as the ideal Mormon woman, as his goddess that he would take into the New Jerusalem. We can turn the tables here and show how Lori was also developing this fantasy and had been developing this fantasy, this fantasy since childhood of somebody like Chad. The fact is that Chad doesn't really exist to Lori. What exists is a prophet or a spiritually divine human being that can express love to her, a love that she's never known, but can express love to her in a way that will become a panacea for her problems. It turns out that Chad is that person. The way Chad becomes that person is because Lori finds his books, we believe, around 2015. She throws herself into his books. She's also come across Julie Rowe's books around the same time. Right. She's read Julie Rowe's books. Julie Rowe starts publishing through Chad around 2014, but Chad has been writing his books since 1999. Mm -hmm. So Lori goes back to all of Chad's books. As far as we can tell, she starts reading them around 2015. So what's going on is that... Lori is now becoming a lot like Spencer, that Spencer is creating this obsessive fantasy of the way in which Katy Perry loves him. Lori, similarly, is starting to create this fantasy of the ideal man who, in her mind's eye, could be a prophet. And I think she's starting to believe, based upon her readings of Chad's books, that Chad is that person. And she's also, without knowing Chad, a little starstruck. Someone that's special among her circle. An author. In fact, on that first welfare check with JJ, when the police officers are debating who Chad Daybell is. Chad Daybell, Chad Daybell, I've heard that name. Lori's quick to say, he's an author. Although the policemen were actually thinking, isn't that the guy whose wife just died? Lori's response is, He's an author. She's starstruck. She's starstruck that this man is a published author. Chad Chad D-A-Y-B-E-L-O? He's an author. He's not the Chad Bell that 
Did his wife pass away recently? There's a little bit of fangirling going on here. I think this becomes really interesting when Lori meets Chad in 2018 at a Preparing the People conference. Shortly after Lori meets Chad, we have good reasons to believe that Lori's parents and her sister, Summer, all attended a Preparing the People conference. Yes, and this rumor was recently discussed in a recorded conversation between Lori's sister, Summer, and Prosecutor Rob Wood. Summer did say she attended a conference. So I think we can safely say that is true now. And what is really interesting to me about that dynamic is that her father is there. Right. With Chad Daybell. Right. It's not unreasonable to think that her father actually blessed that relationship with Chad Daybell. Or if he didn't bless it, he at least showed some approval of Chad Daybell. He likely admired Chad Daybell. And Barry, as far as we can tell, really didn't have a tremendous amount of of admiration for any of Lori's previous husbands. We know this because when Janice and Summer are interviewed on national television, they rave about Lori. They are there defending Lori, that she is a wonderful mother, a wonderful sister, a wonderful woman, a wonderful daughter, but they have one complaint about Lori, and that is the men she chooses. We really think that she did nothing wrong. She's had some bad judgment. She's married a few men that we didn't care for. She'll be the first to say that she's she's made made a lot of mistakes and she's paid high prices for those mistakes. If Lori is attempting to gain acceptance from her family and in this area she is failing, she would very much want her father and her parents to give their blessing. She would want to make sure that her dad approved of Chad Daybell. And it appears as if he does approve of Chad Daybell and he does know about Chad's writings. Summer tells us in this interview she's met Chad. He, I don't know Chad very well. I've only met him one time. I've never heard anything about him self-proclaiming to be a prophet or anything else of that nature or trying to get people to follow him. But if somebody chooses to do that on their, you know, on their own, that's their choice. This is where, to me, we're going to start uncovering what's most hidden with Lori Vallow Daybell. Psychologists often talk about what's called the transference neurosis. That was a Freudian term. Nowadays, we just call it the transference. But the transference is a mental representation that we've developed often since we were children. We develop these mental representations of others at a very early age. And so our strongest mental representations, or sometimes we call them identifications, are with our parents, our mother or our father or both, most likely. But we develop these representations of our parents that we then carry with us throughout life. And these representations are important because the word transference suggests to transfer, that we tend to take these representations and transfer them onto other people. For example, with Lori, part of her transference is taking some representations of her father and bringing them into her relationship with men. We know that Lori has had some very unhealthy relationship with men. 
She claims that some of those relationships were abusive. And this would make sense because Barry could have been abusive. And this is what she knows. I'm not suggesting that that's right or justified. Abuse never is. But what I'm suggesting is that there was a certain comfort level with the transference of her father, Barry, that she was in these relationships because that was the representation she knew the best. Here, we have a situation where Lori finally meets Chad. She's developed this fantasy of Chad over four or five years from reading his books. She likely has a very conflicted relationship with her father that she's had since she was a little girl. And now her father is giving his approval of Chad Daybell. This must seem like an epiphanal moment to Lori, I think, because it's probably the first time that her father has approved of someone that she's interested in, and not only approved of him, but she sees him as a type of ideal man. Well, never mind that they're both still married. I mean... Is it just enough that her dad might have liked Chad in general? Is that what you mean by a blessing? Or are you saying that he might have actually known about the affair? I think I'm referring to the fact that Barry more than likely thought Chad was a genuinely spiritual person and quite possibly a prophet who could have a very positive influence on his daughter's life. Okay, that makes sense. Not blessing an affair, no. Just seeing Chad as someone who would be good for his daughter and letting his daughter do the rest. <laughs> take the reins. <laughs> letting, his, letting his daughter take the interpretation of his positive thoughts about Chad to whatever portal she wants to head to. <laughs> right. <laughs> if Lori has such a complicated relationship with her father, why would she care so much what he thought? Why would she want to marry someone that he approved of? Even though she finds a certain amount of comfort in attaching to men who occupy very traditionally masculine roles... Ultimately, her dream is to resolve those early childhood conflicts. Those lucky guys. Well, I also want to throw out that Lori seems to also abuse her husbands. I've read a lot of evidence from court docs that show this. While I don't disagree with that, I think that what I'm looking at here is Lori's mental representations of men, not necessarily the way she has treated them, although that was, that's an interesting topic in and of itself. It's unlikely that Lori challenged or tried to push back or abuse her father. And so her mental representations, at least her earliest mental representations of men, tend to be with a parental figure who is dominant, traditionally masculine, and even in some cases, possibly abusive. Her dream is to find a man who can help her overcome and heal from all of her childhood traumas. In other words, she wants to find a man like her father, but someone who can make her whole, that like her father, but someone who can mend all those childhood wounds through her affiliation with that person. It's a bit of a paradox. She wants to find someone like her father, but 
someone who can go beyond her father and help heal her her past traumas in a way that her father never could or can. Or in other words, someone just like her father, but who will love her and who will be who she always wanted her father to be, to fill that wholeness. Yeah, exactly. Psychologists sometimes call that object mastery, that as we go through a number of difficulties or traumas in childhood or even into adulthood, that we try to overcome those traumas by returning to them and trying to master the emotions and the thoughts and the behaviors surrounding some of those traumas. And the best way to do that is to find an object, that's not quite the right term, but that's what psychologists say, an object is typically a person, to find a person or object who can help us revisit those past obstacles. And that would be Chad Daybell for Lori Vallow. Yes, exactly. Chad is someone who is receiving her father's blessing. He's extremely religious, like her father. He was born and raised in the Mormon faith. He was a returned missionary. And unlike many of Lori's previous husbands, he was not a convert to the church. Although I have to say, being a convert's pretty good. Lori converting these men? I mean, I haven't been able to do it. Sometimes it's a tough sell. (laughs) But yes, you're right. He was a return missionary. He came from a long line of Mormon pioneers. Chad did. He has written books that her father presumably has read and admires. It's a perfect setup for Lori to engage in this process of object mastery to overcome all of these childhood difficulties. So then what went wrong? Because we all know a lot did. I think it's one thing to desire to overcome your past traumas. And it's another thing altogether to do it in a healthy fashion. So obviously the doing here was a little more difficult. Here's the problem. Lori doesn't feel, which means she doesn't feel love. You know who else didn't seem to feel, according to some witnesses who knew Muhammad Atta? Listen to this. The reason I think that I remember him the most was his eyes. When he would look at you as if he was looking directly through you, there was no emotion in him at all. Many people that knew Muhammad Atta seemed to describe his eyes as emotionless and blank. That seemed to be a very consistent feature of many people that ran into him. But as you say, Lori doesn't feel. She doesn't know what love is. She can't feel love. She doesn't feel connected to the things she supposedly values and believes the most, which are these religious beliefs. Huh. That although those beliefs are extreme, they don't help her to actually interact with real human beings in the real world. Love is much more complicated than simply adhering to some abstraction of love that a so-called prophet like Chad Daybell is going to bring into your life. Okay. This is where it's easier to understand how and why Lori could condone murdering her children because love to her is not a real flesh and blood emotion. It's an abstraction. 
It's something she doesn't really feel or understand. When you say an abstraction, what do you mean? Katy Perry is an abstraction to Spencer. He can't possibly know what a relationship with Katy Perry would be like because he's never been in that relationship. Right. In other words, if he were in a relationship with Katy Perry, hypothetically, let's say he was in a relationship with her, like every relationship, there would be conflict and there would be fights and there would be disagreements and there would be compromise. And of course, there would probably be good moments too. But love is not just about perfection and bliss all the time. Are you sure? How about sometimes bliss? Mostly. 70%? (laughs) Point is, I think Lori had some of those experiences with her kids, but I think she also ran away from that. I think that she didn't really know how to love those children. Clearly. We've always speculated that Chad was the one who asked her to murder the kids. I don't think it was that difficult for her because love to her wasn't something real. It was otherworldly. So in other words, she kills for love with Chad Daybell, yet she's able to kill her children because she doesn't love them. (laughs) The love she craves is a love not of this world. After I've had this washing over of the Lord who gave me all of his complete love, all of his peace, which is not of this world. So I think it's easier for her to be unemotional and detached about murder because she doesn't know what real flesh and blood love is. Let's listen to Muhammad Atta talking to the air traffic controllers just before crashing into the North Tower of the World Trade Centers. Yes, this is what we played at the beginning of our episode. Let's listen to it again. We have some planes. Stay quiet and you'll be okay. We're returning to the airport. And uh, who's trying to call me here? American 11, are you trying to call? Nobody move. Everything will be okay. If you try to make any move, you'll danger yourself and the airplane. Just stay quiet. So he's telling everyone to just stay calm, even though they're all about to die? Similarly to Lori being detached, I think what really stands out here is Ada also being detached. He's trying to project a certain amount of calm. He's asking people to remain quiet. He's showing no emotion when several minutes after this, he will be hurling a plane into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. I think the reason he is able to maintain so much equanimity is because he is thinking about the outcome. And the outcome is this immortal, ideal love where he will be reunified with God or Allah. And so he's calm. He's detached. He's not in the moment. He doesn't care about sacrificing thousands of human beings. He only cares about his larger vision of peace and reunion with God the Father. So in other words, just what you said about Lori, he doesn't care or doesn't understand what real flesh and blood love is. So he doesn't care about these people on this plane that are all about to die. 
and the thousands of people in the towers that are all about to die. Right. He's connecting to a larger sense of some ideal love, just as Laurie is trying to connect to that. He's not connected to the human beings in the airplane or the human beings in the towers. He's detached from that. He's indifferent to that. His only concern is getting to heaven or getting to that reunion with Allah. For Lori, it seems like her big concern is being with Chad Daybell. Does she not know that she's not going to receive that type of love from Chad Daybell? I mean, it's not even something, as you say, that she can understand on earth. Chad Daybell is a means to an end. Her larger vision with Chad Daybell is a vision of them in the post-apocalypse it's a vision of them as God and goddess in the New Jerusalem leading the new world. So I think even with Chad Daybell, I think he's a means to an end. Just as crashing a plane into the World Trade Center is a means to an end for Muhammad Atta. She doesn't know that she's not going to receive that from Chad Daybell, that her love is not even something that she can understand. Let's take this even a step further. Chad represents an ideal to her. It's an ideal that will allow her to overcome all of her past wounds and all of her past hurts from her father. That Chad, in many ways, will become a stand-in and a fantasy figure for her. He'll become the father she always desired. He'll become her salvation. Mm -hmm. That Chad is also this abstraction of love. It's the love she wanted to get from her father but never did. So Chad becomes the symbolic representation of everything Lori has desired from her father but never received. Murder for her, ironically, I think, for Lori, murder becomes an expression of love, but a really dysfunctional, distorted, abstract version of love that she doesn't understand. And I would even go a step further than that, and say there's almost this mystical, transcendental type of love she's seeking here. She talks about merging with Jesus. She talks about it in the Melody Gibb call, and she talks about it in the murder tape. What she wants is a love that doesn't exist. She wants almost a mythological type of love. She wants to merge with a mythical version of the Father. And that mythical version of the Father, which she sought her whole life, and she's created this fantasy of, through Chad's books, is now presenting itself to her when she meets Chad Daybell. Ironically, Muhammad Atta on 9-11 said something very similar when he left behind a letter the day of the 9-11 massacre. And you know, I didn't even know he had left a letter behind until you shared this with me recently. When I did some of the research on terrorists a few episodes ago, I came across this letter, and it was fascinating to me because you would think that in that letter, Muhammad Atta would be angry towards the Western infidels that are impinging upon the Middle East's values and way of life, but he doesn't. In fact, in his letter, he doesn't mention that at all. What he talks about is how blissful it will be to return to a reunion with God. Take a listen to this. Purify your soul from all blemishes. Completely forget something called this world. 
The time for play is over, and the serious time is upon us. How much time have we wasted in our lives? Shouldn't we take advantage of these last hours to offer sacrifices and obedience? You should feel complete tranquility, because the time between you and your marriage in heaven is very short. Afterward begins the happy life where God is satisfied with you, and eternal bliss in the company of prophets, the companions, the martyrs, the good people who are the best company. Just as Muhammad Adda has no regard whatsoever for the 3,000 living, breathing human beings inside the World Trade Centers, because he sees them as expendable when compared to the bliss and transcendence he will experience after he dies, when he finds, as he says, tranquility in the afterlife. You should feel complete tranquility because the time between you and your marriage in heaven is very short. Afterward begins the happy life. I think something similar is going on with Lori, that her children are expendable in the service of her larger vision of a reunion with Jesus Christ. The time is now. The Lord is gathering his people. He is calling people to the 144,000. They're already being called. They're already being sent on their mission. They're already going full circle. The time is now. He is coming. He is preparing us. And we promised we would do it. The time for play is over. The time is now. The time between you and your marriage in heaven is very short. The time is now. He is coming. Afterward begins the happy life. You should feel complete tranquility. All of his complete love. All of his peace, which is not of this world. Let me take a moment here to review some of the research on terrorist psychology and how Lori and Muhammad Atta actually share many common characteristics. I'm going to cite a research article by Jeff Viktorov from 2005. This is in the Journal of Conflict Resolution. Viktorov provides a quick summary of some of the, quote, typical psychological characteristics of terrorists. He finds four of those characteristics. They are, number one, high effective valence regarding an ideological issue. So this, as we talked about in our last episode, is what I called hot cognition. This is about being very emotionally attached to one's beliefs, and in this particular case, extreme beliefs, Viktorov refers to this as ideological beliefs. So for Atta, the ideology is obviously jihad or Muslim fundamentalism. For Lori, the ideology is deeply conservative and fundamental Mormon beliefs with a constant apocalyptic vision of the future that she believes will transpire. And by the way, this is the point at which we can get Spencer off the bus, because Spencer does not see love in this context. Spencer does not situate love within the context of larger ideology, as Victoroff points out. So 
Spencer is actually not going to fall into this category of a terrorist. He is more lovesick and simply using love as a means to feel special and to probably overcome some of his childhood hurts. Whereas Lori and Muhammad Atta are using love to realize this larger ideological worldview. The second element in the mind of a terrorist, according to Viktorov, is some type of personal stake. He describes this as, quote, an extraordinary need for identity, glory, or vengeance that distinguishes him or her from the vast majority of those who fulfill the first characteristic. And again, I think this would apply to Lori and Atta both. For Atta, his part of his mission here is to become a martyr, which appears to have been realized after this horrendous tragedy. For Lori, too, this is part of her identity. This is part of her vision of herself as a goddess in the new Jerusalem. It is, like for Atta, it involves a certain amount of glory. And that also involves Chad. The Chad is the prophet who will walk hand in hand with Lori into this new world. And so both of them are heavily invested in this notion of what Viktorov refers to as a personal stake. The third element that Viktorov identifies in the mind of a terrorist is, quote, low cognitive flexibility, low tolerance for ambiguity, and elevated tendency towards attribution error. Translation, this means being closed-minded. We've talked about this previously. I mentioned this in the research in the book Engineers of Jihad, where he pointed out perhaps the most important and salient characteristic of terrorist psychology was what he called need for closure. That's exactly what Viktorov is talking about here. And so Atta and Lori, again, both fit this very, very closely, that neither of them are able to sustain enough cognitive flexibility or curiosity or to see enough differing perspectives to stand outside of their ideology and their worldview and to question their beliefs. And so they become trapped in these very narrow perspectives of the world that they simply can't overcome. And so because of that, because of that, their actions are much more likely to become extreme. This is really important because as much as we've talked about belief forming in the family and developing in the family, which is a nurturance issue, now we're getting into belief as a function of one's personality. This idea of need for closure is actually more of a personality trait. So it's more genetic. It's more characteristic of one's personality from a very early age. And so I think Muhammad Atta and Lori both share this personality trait. When you combine this with all of the elements we talked about in our last episode, in terms of extreme beliefs in a family culture that's chaotic and the confirmation bias and all these other elements that play into developing extreme beliefs, this kind of seals the deal. This is the nail in the coffin. If you have someone like Lori who grows up in a home that's very extreme and chaotic and there's this propensity towards dealing with that chaos through developing very rigid and extreme beliefs and then 
you have this personality trait of closed-mindedness, it's going to be very hard to overcome that. And in fact, that's what happens here with both Atta and Lori. The results are extreme. They're unable to surmount their very narrow and limited views of the world. That would be common of most terrorists. And that's certainly true here. And again, Spencer doesn't seem to have this need for closure so much. This is what would distinguish him from a typical terrorist. Spencer is someone who is gullible and probably suggestible to some degree, and he's easy prey for someone seeking to catfish him, as we know, and that he fell into this very easily. But he's no terrorist. He's not capable of taking that final step of murdering or harming other human beings, I don't believe, because he's not immersed in this larger ideological vision of the world and how it should be, and he doesn't harbor these fantasies of post-apocalyptic transcendence and reunion with God or a higher being. Taking all of that in, thank you for sharing all of that. The best way I can conceptualize this type of love would be to call it immortal love. By calling it immortal love, it's clear that any other type of love, any love that's comprised of mere flesh and bones, is not going to have the same force or effect as the immortal love she seeks. So ironically, I think this is what Lori's after. She's after this mythical reunion with, in this case, God the Father. God the Father becomes a symbolic stand-in for her dad and for Chad Daybell. It's no irony that Chad Daybell says, I testify all the time. All the time. Testify. I just want to testify. They testify. I want to testify. And... By the way, when people say, oh, all Mormons say that. I just want to testify. I can say, no, they do not. Do you hear that from Mormon authority figures and leaders during sermons? Yes. It's during an event, an important religious event that you might hear that from the pulpit, from the prophet or an apostle or an authority figure. You do not hear that in common everyday language that is not said in regular daily conversation chad's use of i testify is unusual it's also no irony that her father says i testify in fact let's listen to some of his statements from his letter to the courts defending his son alex cox my testimony is that Joseph Ryan, who was married to my daughter, Lori Ryan Ballow, imagined the facts. This is a document we received from Cheryl Wheeler. Cheryl Wheeler is Charles Ballow's ex-husband, Lori's husband that was shot dead. Cheryl sent us this letter written by Barry Cox. It was addressed to the court when his son, Alex Cox, Lori's brother, was being sentenced for assaulting Lori's ex-husband, Joe Ryan. Barry is requesting that the judge give Alex a lighter sentence. My testimony is that Joseph Ryan, who was married to my daughter, Lori Ryan Ballow, imagined the facts and misled the security guard. 
My testimony is that Joseph Ryan, my testimony is. I mean, what are your thoughts on this letter? I mean, I would call it pompous. Yeah, it's super pompous. It shows Barry's sense of self-importance and his belief that he's speaking as a higher authority. When you qualify a statement with my testimony or I testify, you're essentially invoking authority. Right. You're invoking a higher authority or you're citing yourself as that authority. It's pompous and self-important, which is both Chad and Barry. It's very similar. Right. Exactly. That's why they're speaking the same language. When I go to the grocery store and buy some kimchi... He bought, well, kimchi. I go to the grocery he bought kimchi at the grocery store yesterday. That's true. <laughs> when I check out and the, the person asks me, did you find everything you need? I don't say, I testify that I did. I mean, <laughs> I think it's just taken for granted that the answer is, yes, I did. Thank you. Or better yet, let's talk about when you speak in court, you don't get up there and say, I testify or my testimony is. Right. No, I I make it clear I'm expressing my opinion. I'm not speaking for a higher authority than myself. I have never once said in court, I testify that what I'm saying is true. I think a similarity is that both Chad and Barry use a very similar dialectic, that they both invoke this idea of testimony or testifying, which is, is unique. It's different. It's a commonality that they share that I think must have appealed at some deeper level to Lori. There's similarity of language and using the word testify and testimony shows that they think similarly, that they both have extreme views of the world, that they're both in some ways religious zealots. They both have a sense of entitlement. They both have narcissistic qualities. They're both dominant, at least within their families. They have dominant views of the world. They are both interested in power and assuming power over different entities, including the government or the IRS. There are many, many parallels between Barry and Chad that Lori, I'm sure, finds appealing. So it's not just the similarities between Barry and Chad that Lori finds appealing. It's the fact that Barry and Chad represent this transcendent love that's unobtainable, that's calling her to wash away all of her sins and all of her pains and all of her traumas from the past so that when Chad Daybell, who claims to be a prophet and who represents exactly this kind of love that Lori is seeking, when he asks her to murder her children, which seems highly probable, she finds that request to be more compelling than the survival of her kids because her kids don't provide her with the kind of transcendent love that Chad and Jesus and this, this apocalyptic vision of the future offers her. When I think about this, I'm actually reminded to some degree of the Twilight series by Stephanie Meyer. We have some indication that Lori has read the Twilight books and is familiar with them. It's interesting to think of it in this context because in many ways, Chad is similar to Edward in the Twilight books in the sense that Edward is immortal. He is otherworldly in the sense that he's a vampire. He's not human. 
Unobtainable. Unobtainable. I'm not sure there's much difference between a vampire offering you the promise of immortal love and a prophet who is offering you the vision of an apocalyptic world where you, like Edward, if you happen to be Edward's love interest, <laughs> will occupy a very prominent and powerful place in that immortal life. If we try to look for what's really hidden in the case of Lori, I think we find that Lori murders for love. But it's a love that's abstract and mystical and transcendent and not of this world, which is to say it's a love that in many ways isn't real human love to begin with. I want to read a quote by William Butler Yeats from Meditations in Time of Civil War. Yeats said, We had fed the heart on fantasies, the heart's grown brutal from the fair. What Yeats meant was that fantasy, in the absence of something real, can take on a life of its own, and often a life that can lead us to treacherous behaviors and to dark places. And that actually reminds me of an episode of Dexter. <laughs> Dexter, Catfish, we got them all tonight. <laughs> this is from the episode called An Inconvenient Lie. It's season two, episode three. This is a quote from Dexter. I'm Dexter, and I'm not sure what I am. Hi, Dexter. I just know there's something dark in me. I hide it. I certainly don't talk about it. But it's there. Always. This dark passenger. And when he's driving, I feel alive. I'm half sick with the thrill, the complete wrongness. I don't fight him. I don't want to. He's all I've got. Nothing else could love me. Not even... Especially not me. When I remember that quote from Dexter many years ago, it stood out because it suggests that those darker parts of ourselves, even though we don't want to acknowledge them, sometimes those are the parts we know the best. Sometimes we think that those parts of us are the most lovable parts, oddly. And I, when I think of this, I think it has tremendous applicability to Lori. I think if you dig even deeper with Lori, if we go beyond this notion of transcendent love, what you'll find is a lot of self-hatred. The dark passenger for Lori is her self-hatred. The dark passenger for Lori is this part of her that she detests, that she doesn't want to acknowledge, that's capable of murder, that says that in her testimony. Well, listen, listen to this. Listen, again, we've played this soundbite before. This is what Lori has to say about the devil. And Satan had been torturing me since I was a little kid. So I've had that my whole life. 
This statement is an important moment for Lori because we have to assume that the devil as some external entity is not following her around. Therefore, the implications of this statement are that Lori is internalizing the sense of the devil, that she's actually seeing the devil as a part of herself that's closely aligned with who she is. It's very much like Dexter's Dark Passenger. This would be, I think, about as close as we can get to Lori telling us that she's filled with self-hatred. And Satan had been torturing me since I was a little kid. So I've had that my whole life. She sees the devil as inescapably tied to who she is. It's very much like Dexter's Dark Passenger. And that, as Dexter said, Dark Passenger. And when he's driving, I feel alive. I don't fight him. I don't want to. He's all I've got. Nothing else could love me. Not even me. And Satan had been torturing me since I was a little kid. So I've had that my whole life. She can't let go of it because it's the only part of her that loves her. It's the part she knows the best, even though she won't acknowledge that. But what about those who are Christian and believe in the devil and the devil tempting them? Uh, you know, Christians will talk about some people having bigger struggles than others, and it's the devil tempting us. Right. I think they're talking about the devil in the same way that Lori is here. They're talking about the devil as a part of themselves. They're talking about the devil as a competing faction to their good side, that the devil represents temptation or maybe malevolence or certain behaviors or thoughts or actions that we don't want to engage in. And so we have to resist those or we try to resist those. It's still, it's still a reflection on an internal struggle. Sort of like those Looney Tune cartoons where you've got the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. So what you're saying is those people that really struggle with the devil or are believing they struggle with the devil, there's self-hatred or shame. They're using the devil as a, as a metaphor for an external entity, but in fact, the devil in these cases would be in their mind. It's a psychological state. So yes, it is something like shame or self-hatred, or humiliation. It could be a number of negative emotional states that people struggle with. And so they recognize that, and their goal is to try to overcome that. Okay. I'm never going to see a Looney Tunes cartoon the same way again. Beyond this notion of love for Lori is this notion of love as self-hatred. Love of the Dexter variety. The dark passenger is the part of him he can't let go of because it's the part he can count on, the part that he knows will love him no matter what. That's Lori Fallow Daybell. It's all self-hatred. It's all based on the idea that she, like Dexter, has a good deal of psychopathy. She doesn't feel She's capable of rage, and she's capable of murder. That's the part that she connects to the best. Since we asked this about Chad, I have to ask it with Lori. Would you say that because Lori essentially murdered for love and self-hatred, if you dig deep enough, that's what she murdered for, would you say that Lori is evil? It's interesting you asked that question because... 
we actually had we had one of our listeners essentially say that we probably could have saved a lot of time and energy if we just came to the conclusion that Lori was evil from the start. End of story. Hard stop. Boom. <laughs> and right. I think that most podcasts that aren't us would say that. If you want to go listen to all those others, that's what you're going to hear. Right. So we hope you haven't wasted <laughs> your time by listening to us because perhaps we could have said in the first five minutes of our first podcast that Lori was evil and <laughs> be done with everything else. But here we are. We've spent hours on this podcast, and now we're going to have to grapple with this question of whether Lori is evil in a way that won't be as reductive or simplistic as Dorner's idea of horizontal flight. In other words, I don't think we're going to say she's evil, hard stop, good night, drive safely, thanks for coming. (laughs) No, we're the hidden podcast. That's not what we're going to do. There's a book called Humanity's Dark Side. In that book, there's an essay by a psychologist by the name of Peter Schmidt. The essay is called Whence the Evil? A Personalistic and Dialogic Perspective. Here's what Schmidt says about evil. Quote, evil is opposition to love. Therefore, and with all due cautiousness and carefulness because of the multiple meanings of the word love, evil is the failure to love oneself and the other. To love is used here in the meaning of agape, which refers to unconditional positive regard. Schmidt goes on, quote, it is evil to deprive oneself and others of respect, regard, and acknowledgement as a person. It is evil to withhold love towards oneself and others, unquote. Hmm. So what he's saying is, that evil is the opposition of love, the opposite of love. Right. Help me understand what you mean by her self-hatred, because really all the public sees, what I see is this, this overindulgent self-infatuation. I think it's important to recognize that in the story of Narcissus, and we talked about this in one of our earlier episodes, that when Narcissus looks into the lake at his reflection, all he sees is his image. There's no substance behind that image. So self-infatuation, in some ways, is looking into the mirror and looking at nothing else, that there's no substance. (laughs) To have self-esteem means to have some sense of who we are and to have some substance behind the image. If she's smitten or infatuated with herself, that doesn't suggest that she has a lot of self-esteem. Her self-hatred is more than likely a function of a childhood that was abusive or neglectful or traumatic. And the message she received consistently, I would imagine, would have been that she wasn't lovable. Self-hatred is born from that feeling of unlovability, which is ironic, again, because Lori, more so than anything else, wants this type of mystical and mythical love that she can never seem to find. And yet, because of her inability to express and feel that kind of love, or real love, I should say, the inability to truly connect to others in a loving, meaningful way, this 
would suggest, according to Schmidt, at least, that she is evil. And if we look at her self-hatred, he says that her inability to love herself is also potentially a form of evil. I think I don't necessarily agree with his perspective, but it's an interesting perspective. I have friends with low self-esteem that aren't evil. Help me understand this. I think what Schmidt is talking about here is the idea that self-hatred in the absence of any self-regard starts approaching something like evil. In other words, self-hatred without anything to counterbalance that is more than likely going to lead to aggression or violence or potentially evil acts. And when you say counterbalance, you mean? I mean that most of us have some shame and probably some self-hatred or maybe some dislike of ourselves. Self-hatred would be an extreme. Most of us have that, but we also have some positive feelings about ourselves. We also have some positive self-regard. So there's a, there's a mixture. There's a balance. What he's talking about, he's referring to evil as the absence of self-regard, just pure self-hatred. Dexter, again, Dexter would be an example of someone who is pure self-hatred, that there's no other forces that can counteract that self-hatred. He's acting from that place of pure self-hatred. So when there's no self-regard whatsoever, that's when evil happens. That's what Schmidt's arguing, that, that it's not just the absence of love. Evil is not the absence of love. Evil is closer to the complete absence of love and is driven by something that he would perceive to be self-hatred. I think that as we venture out into other cases, we're always going to return to this question of evil because it's the question of crime. It's the question that crime forces us to answer. Are these people evil? And I think we're going to find multiple ways to answer that question. But I don't have an answer here about whether Lori's evil. I think this is an interesting perspective to consider that question. I think that for someone who wants love so desperately and struggles to fully feel and understand what love is, that it's a really fascinating way to consider the possibility of evil. But does this go to the whole cliche, if you can't love yourself first, you'll never find love? I mean, is that what we're talking about? I think there's some relationship there, for sure, that the inability to love ourselves first definitely hinders us in expressing love towards others. I think we see that with Spencer in Catfish, that his need for some type of external love from someone who isn't available to him strongly suggests his struggles to really comfort and feel some positive regard towards himself. And I think we see something similar with Muhammad Atta. He's so intent upon realizing his goal of reunion with Allah that he's willing to lose himself in the process. So terrorism and destruction become secondary to his larger goals of becoming a martyr and, and realizing, to use his term, eternal bliss in the afterlife. Since we're talking about this idea of love and self-hatred, 
and evil potentially as the opposite of love, many of you might be asking, well, John, so what is love? What is the kind of love that we should seek? And I'm going to end with a quote from the well-known, famous psychologist Rollo May, who talked about love a great deal. May said, quote, to love means to open ourselves to the negative as well as the positive, to grief, sorrow, and disappointment, as well as to joy, fulfillment, and an intensity of consciousness we did not know was possible before. And so I think what May is saying is that, number one, there's a complexity to love that we don't always anticipate, that certainly Spencer could never anticipate, and that Muhammad Atta could never possibly envision, and that Lori didn't anticipate with her children or with her relationships that always became disastrous in the end. In other words, when Tylee became independent and opinionated. And... JJ being rambunctious. Well, and trying to negotiate a normal relationship with Joe Ryan or her previous two husbands. Right. That any type of normal, intimate relationship she struggled with. Rollo May points to the idea that love, like everything else in life, is complex and requires a capacity for self-sacrifice and forgiveness and giving and compromise and dealing with conflict and difference and tolerating frustration. And that's real. That's the real love. And the beauty of that kind of love, I think, that we can say is... Mm -hmm. Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) Is that it grows deeper over time. Absolutely. Even though there might be rifts and conflicts in a relationship, that with enough love and healthy communication, those are overcome. And that you become closer to someone through those types of interactions. The goal isn't to avoid those situations. The goal is to embrace them. I think you said something really important. I think even in the therapy world, we assume that all conflict is bad. You know, I know therapists, I know a therapist specifically who's afraid of any conflict, that if she has conflict in her marriage, it means something's wrong with their marriage. And you're saying that love can grow stronger through the grief and through the moments that aren't perfect. Yeah, through differences. That's that's real. That's what makes a relationship real. It's one thing to date someone and have minimal interactions with them and to experience all these romantic feelings, but that's not the real relationship. That's not real love. I think real love is built upon a foundation of nurturance and caring and empathy and understanding and compassion, but also the willingness to compromise and to tolerate differences and to respect other opinions. I think that's the place from which relationships deepen. And I don't think that's the place that Lori Vallow Daybell was willing to go or even consider going, that her version of love was an empty abstraction that kept her from loving, ironically, because she wasn't willing to dig deep enough 
into the difficulties and complexities of a real relationship. I want to tell a story about an experience I had several years ago uh, when I visited a prison to see an inmate who was a very powerful inmate at the time in the sense that he more or less ran the prison block where he was residing. He had a long history of violence. I was sent in to assess him by the DA to determine whether the possibility of parole would ever be an option on the table during his lifetime. I remember meeting him and sensing right away that he wasn't going to be cooperative. He made it clear that he didn't want to be there, that he didn't want to answer my questions. And then he did something that's rare. He shocked me. He said, essentially, hey, Doc, have you ever heard this quote from Nietzsche? And I thought, okay, you know, I know I probably know the Nietzsche quote because it's in the beginning of every FBI profiler's book. I'm very familiar with the quote, but okay, here we go. Let's hear it. And he said the quote, and the quote goes like this. Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process, he does not become a monster. And if you stare long enough into the abyss, the abyss will stare back into you. He quoted that Nietzsche quote, and he looked at me, and he said, you know, Doc, I'm the monster you're most afraid of. I'm the monster who keeps you up at night. I am your biggest effing nightmare. And he said, I want to let you know that I know where you live. I know where your family lives. And I know people on the outside who will do anything for this monster. And they'll do anything to frighten you. And they'll do anything to make sure that this evaluation is positive. And I want to let you know that if this evaluation isn't positive, that things may not turn out well for you. And so, of course, I've been threatened before in situations in prison, but this wasn't a particularly pleasant moment. <laughs> I had a couple of options. I could have pressed the panic button and the guard would have come in and I could have told the guard that I needed to talk to the DA. I could have told the DA that his inmate that I was evaluating had essentially threatened my life and my family's life. And of course, that would not have gone well for him, but I wouldn't have had to do the evaluation because it would have been very clear that he would never have a chance at probation or parole in the future. And more than likely, new charges would have been filed so I paused for a moment, and I did what I tend to do in these moments, which is to try to buy some time, and I leveraged the use of silence as much as I can in these situations, so I shut down, and I didn't say anything for minutes. Probably seemed to him like hours, but to me, it was something like five minutes, and after a minute, he started taunting me. He said, hey, Doc, what? Did the cat get your tongue? You too afraid to talk? Why can't you talk? And of course, that just meant that I was going to spend a couple more minutes being silent. So I used the silence as leverage to show him that I wasn't going to be reactive. 
and that I didn't need to make a rash decision. I didn't need to lunge towards the panic button to resolve the situation or to resolve my anxiety. I needed to buy some time. So I sat and I sat and I sat a little longer and it was really uncomfortable because nothing was being said. But that also meant and it showed him in a subtle way that I was the one in control of the room in spite of the fact that he was threatening me. So finally, I talked and I said, the DA sent me in here to determine if you will ever see the light of day on the other side of a prison wall for the rest of your life. I said, I don't have to be here. I made a decision to do this because I thought it might benefit you. I could press that button on the wall right now and I can guarantee that you'll never, ever see the light of day in spite of the fact that you just threatened to kill me and my family. But that's not how I perceive my role here. My job is to try to understand you as much as I can. My job is to be here to listen to your story and to try to help you I know you don't see it that way, and I know you feel threatened, but truly, my job is really just understanding and listening and try to make sense of your life and what got you here in the first place. You're already showing me that you're afraid. You're already showing me how you operate by threatening me before I've even had a chance to talk to you. Did you tell him that? Yeah. I said, but it doesn't matter. I just want to listen to you, and I just want to try to understand you. So you have a choice. We can either stay here, and you can, to the best of your ability, you can try to help me understand your life, or I can get up right now, and I can push the button, and we can end all of this really quickly. So... My preference would be to stay and to listen and to help you make sense of your life and to really understand what you've gone through, but it's really up to you. So now he paused and looked at me, and he was sizing me up. He was trying to determine if I was going to, in fact, go for the panic button. I think what he was most accustomed to was someone in my position reacting immediately to the threat and leaving the room. But I didn't do that. So I think that created some trust. When he talked, he said, let's take this from the start. He said, I want to tell you my story. I don't know if I trust you, but I'm going to try, and I'm going to tell you my story and I'm sorry if I threatened you. And so I spent the next five hours listening to his story, developing his trust. It was a tragic story, by the way. He was quite emotional at times. And by the end, he actually shook my hand and thanked me. I'm glad that I didn't overreact and that I stayed the course with him because I think... In the end, he deserved that.
Why am I telling you this story? Carl Rogers is a well-known, famous psychologist who had this idea, what he called unconditional positive regard. Unconditional positive regard is exactly what it says, is exactly what the term suggests, which is treating people with respect, understanding, and acceptance. It's the closest thing, I think, that the field of therapy and psychology has to something like love. Unconditional positive regard is truly embracing and accepting another human being in spite of what they've done or maybe because of it and still trying to see the best in them, still trying to understand them, to unconditionally accept them. As a forensic psychologist, in a situation like that, my job was to do exactly that. It was to stay the course, not overreact, and try to treat this inmate with unconditional positive regard, in spite of the fact that he had just threatened me. Roger's idea of unconditional positive regard actually reminds me a lot of a Buddhist meditation called Mind Like Sky. The basic idea behind Mind Like Sky meditation is to perceive the mind as expansive and as large as the entire sky. And what does that mean? That means that the sky encompasses everything. The sky, in theory, sees everything. Not literally, but we all exist, all of us human beings exist within the great expanse of an openness of the sky. And so the Buddhist idea is that love, in some ways, is like the mind as the sky. That it's embracing everything, it's accepting everything, both good and bad, both good and evil, and it's seen that, all of that, all of it, as a part of life. Nothing more, nothing less. When I think of these ideas of unconditional positive regard and mind like sky, that to me is in many ways how I perceive love. In terms of thinking about these ideas for the Daybell case, I was particularly moved by Larry Woodcock's statement when he went to visit JJ's grave and body the day after the body was discovered in June. Yeah, right after they found the bodies. He went over to say goodbye to JJ, and let's take a listen to what Larry said. That's the seat where... I'm not coming in hostility in any way. I come with trying to be the peacemaker. And that's all I want. I just want to be a peacemaker. I want, let's all get along here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What's extraordinary about Larry's statement to me is this idea of unconditional positive regard or mind like sky that Larry is accepting both the murderer and the child hmm. in the same sentence. That Larry is showing this tremendous love for human beings in spite of the horrendous crime that's occurred, in spite of the fact that his grandson was murdered. That Larry is demonstrating love in this moment in a way that few of us can probably comprehend. 
But I think Larry has a lesson here to teach all of us. In the article where they shared that clip on Fox 13, in Salt Lake City's Fox 13, he said that he hoped that he could one day talk to and be friends with the Daybell children. The house, you know, that was there in front of the place where JJ was buried. You're right. And so what is love? Although I don't have a great answer for that, and perhaps my answer would change, it's certainly not the abstract, empty version of love that Lori Vallow Daybell seeks. I think love to me is embracing the entire mess and depth and breadth of what human beings are capable of, both good and bad, both hopeful and despairing, both imperfect and transcendent. And to me, that's what we should aspire to, that type of human love. Thank you all for your patience while we got this episode out. We are still here. We are still planning season two. And we will still bring you some more episodes on the Daybell case. While everyone was waiting for part two to come out this episode, it takes teamwork. It's hard. We're both working, both parenting. Uh, So uh, while we were waiting for that time, we were able to get this done. We decided to divide forces. And I put out a couple of YouTube videos on our YouTube channel, Hidden True Crime. One of those was an interview that had been posted to Patreon for a few months. For Patreon supporters, we decided to share it publicly because Mary Tracy, friend of Alex Cox, uh, shared some really interesting things that had never been shared publicly before in an hour-long interview. And we put that raw interview up for anyone to watch. In addition, we've put a couple of videos up, some things that Lori Vallow, Daybell's neighbor, told us. Head to our YouTube channel, subscribe, and take a listen there. While these podcast episodes are being created, we'll work to continue to put out content and information on our YouTube channel. I want to thank all of our listeners for your comments and wonderful feedback. I want to actually read one of our Apple reviews, which was quite touching. This is from an Apple review. Actually, I'm going to read it because you don't have your glasses on and we know what that means. This was left February 28th, 2021. Thank you for looking at the deeper meaning behind a complex situation. I have had two family members mixed up in a similar break off of this cult and it has destroyed our family. This podcast has given me a sense of peace that this has been going on our entire lives. We have been slowly groomed to accept this as normal behavior. All of the therapy I have had has not had the impact this podcast has had on me. I am grateful. We don't know who wrote this, but these types of comments mean so much to us, and they inspire us, and they really motivate us to keep going. So thank you very much. That means a lot to us. It means a lot to me. 
I'm glad that we could help in some small measure and that we provided a bit of insight that has been useful to you. I'm always humbled to receive comments like this that speak to the impact of our podcast. So thank you. Yes. And if anyone has left us kind comments on Facebook or uh, Instagram or, or any other social media, first off, thank you. We do read those. We're very grateful for them. But if you wouldn't mind going to Apple, Apple Podcasts, and attempting to leave a review there, if you could, those comments help us. They help us climb in the Apple Podcast rankings, which is difficult, which is needed as we try to continue this and hope to find sponsors one day. Until then, we are so grateful for the support of our listeners. We hear you. You tell us to keep going. And we are. We have plans to keep going. So thank you for your support and for your kind reviews. Oh, and exciting news. We might be having guests with us to dinner soon. If so, we'll be bringing you that podcast episode soon. Yes, we're really excited to to be inviting some special and honored guests, and we will be quite honored to invite them to dinner. We hope you'll join us for this special episode. Don't forget to stay safe. Wear that helmet. And please, please, I urge you, do not at any cost or in any circumstance venture into portals. I'm still waiting for one good portal experience. Someone say, no, no, I went and it was terrific. I don't think that will ever happen. To me, the portal is a metaphor for getting completely lost in life and in the paranormal. And I think a lot of bad things happen in portals. So please stay out of portals. Beyond staying out of portals, I think we should add something new. We all need to make sure we're not dating Katy Perry. Sometimes in the Matthias household, we like to say, be careful or you might start dating Katy Perry. (laughs) Or I might look at John and be like, are you dating Katy Perry right now? Is that what you're doing? Is that what this is? Although it's usually me who's dating Katy Perry. But we keep each other in check. If you believe that you can jump into a portal and be transported to Hawaii instantaneously, you're probably dating Katy Perry. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Stay out of portals and remember, don't date Katy Perry. It probably won't work out well. Well, if you really are dating Katy Perry, please reach out because I would love to talk to Orlando Bloom. Say more. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're not Orlando Bloom, and you think you're dating Katy Perry, reach out and we'll let you know that you're living in a fantasy world, along with people who think that they can jump into portals. Maybe if you jump into a portal, you can discover Katy Perry on the other end. No, I would say definitely do not get in that portal. To remind everyone, we have started a YouTube channel, Hidden True Crime. We want to again thank Dan McCauley from Boise, Idaho, who has helped us with several voiceovers now. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash hidden true crime. And our Instagram is instagram.com slash hidden true crime. Stay safe and wear a helmet. Don't go into portals. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.